Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic in the Moon podcast. As always, I am your host, David, and this week um, we're going to kind of continue off of something that I, I guess unofficially started last week. Um, I really enjoy talking with you all about Doreen Valiente in last week's episode, and that has kind of inspired me to talk about um, some of the influential, like, people early in the Wiccan movement. So I'm going to talk about uh, some of those people. And I think this is going to end up being a series on like some famous um, or influential Wiccans. So um, going to start with Gerald Gardner. And um, I'm sure that's obvious as to why he <laughs> is in the series. Um, the Gardnerian tradition is named after him, of course, so he was a big deal. But um, we have a lot to cover, and not a lot of times so we're just going to get straight into it. So Gerald Gardner um, was an English Wiccan, of course, as well as the author and an amateur anthropologist and archaeologist. He was instrumental in bringing the contemporary religion of Wicca to public attention and wrote some of its definitive texts um, throughout his life and then founded what we now call the Gardnerian tradition of Wicca. So Gerald, um, he was born into a very wealthy family, and his father, Joseph, uh, ran a family firm called Joseph Gardner and Sons, and he described it as the oldest private company in the timber trade within the British Empire, specializing particularly on the import of hardwood. The company had been founded in the mid-18th century by Edmund Gardner, an entrepreneur who would subsequently become a freeman of Liverpool. Gerald's father, William, um, had been the youngest son of Joseph Gardner, after whom the firm had been renamed, and who, with his wife Maria, had five sons and three daughters. In 1867, William had been sent to New York City to further the interests of the family business, and he met an American there, Louise Bergelou Ennis, the daughter of a wholesale stationer. Entering a relationship, they were married in Manhattan on the 25th of November in 1868. After a visit to England, the couple returned to the U.S. where they had settled in Mott Haven, Morrisania, and New York State. And it was there that their first child, Harold Ennis Gardner, was born in 1870. At some point in the next two years, they moved back to England by 1873 and settled into the Glen, a large Victorian home in Blundellins, Lancashire, northwest England, which was then developing into a wealthy suburb of Liverpool. It was there that their second child, Robert, was born in 1874. In 1876, the family moved into one of the neighboring houses, and it was there that their third son, who was Gerald, was born on 13th June, 1884. Um, Gerald did not see Harold very often, um, who went on to study law at the University of Oxford, but saw more of Robert, who drew pictures for him, as well as Douglas, with whom he shared a nursery. The gardeners employed an Irish nursemaid named Josephine McCombie, who had entrusted um, with taking care of Gerald and she kind of would become the most important person in his childhood and he spent much more time with her than with his parents. He suffered from asthma from a very early age and had a lot of difficulty in the cold weather of Lancashire so he and Josephine would often travel to warmer climates internationally um, in hopes that his condition would be not so intense. Subsequently, in the summer of 1888, Gerald traveled um, via London to Nice in the south of France, and after several more years spent in the Mediterranean in 1981, that's wrong, Dys dyslexia, 1891, um, they eventually went to the Canary Islands, and it was there 
that Gardner first developed what would become a lifelong interest in weaponry. From there, they went on to Accra and the Gold Coast, which is modern-day Ghana, and this was followed by a visit to Funchal on the Portuguese colony of Madeira. They would spend most of the next nine years on the island, only returning to England occasionally for three or four months in the summer. According to Gardner's first biographer, Jack Bracelin, um, Calm was very flirtatious and kind of looked on these trips mainly as manhunts. This was viewing Gardner as a nuisance. <laughs> so basically he's traveling the world with his uh, childhood nurse who um, was supposed to be taking care of him because he was sick. And then she basically was kind of like, I don't enjoy having you around and I'm trying to find a man. So uh, he was left to his own devices quite often. And he spent that time going out, meeting new people, and learning about other cultures. In Madeira, he also began collecting weapons, many of which were from the Napoleonic Wars, and he displayed them on the wall of his room. And as a result of his illness and these many trips, Gardner didn't really attend school that often, and he taught himself to read. Um, but his writing kind of betrayed uh, his education level throughout his life, and he didn't necessarily have the best spelling and grammar skills. But he did develop a love for reading, and one of the books that influenced him the most at that time was Florence Marriott's There Is No Death, um, which was discussed spiritualism, which he really, I think, admired and cemented his belief in some sort of afterlife. In 1900, his wife, his wife, his nurse, rather, uh, married David Elkington, one of her suitors who owned a tea plantation in the British colony of Ceylon, which is modern-day Sri Lanka. It was agreed that um, Gerald would live with her on the plantation, and he would learn the tea trade. In 1901, he and the Elkingtons lived briefly in Kandy, where a neighboring bungalow had been vacated by um, Alistair Crowley and Charles Bennett who were both occultists, of course. At his father's expense, Gerald trained um, as a tea planter, learning about growing of tea, but he did not enjoy this work, and he enjoyed being outdoors and closer to the forest and things. So he lived with his nurse and her husband until 1904, when he moved into his own home and began earning a living working on the tea estate. He spent much of his spare time hunting deer and traveling through the forest, becoming acquainted with um, the indigenous Sinhalese people who interested him with their Buddhist beliefs. In December of 1904, his parents and his younger brother visited him, and his father asked him to invest in a rubber plantation, which Gardner would then be told to manage. Um, it was known as the Atlanta Estate, but allowed him a great deal of downtime, which he enjoyed. So he continued to explore his interest in weaponry, and by 1907, he had joined the Celion Planter Rifle Corps, a local volunteer force composed of European tea and rubber planters, intent on protecting their interests from foreign aggression. In 1907, Gardner returned to the UK for several months' leave, spending time with his family, and eventually joining the Legion of Frontiersmen, a militia founded to repel the threat of German invasion. And during this visit, he spent a lot of time with his family, and he became very friendly with a lot of them who happened to be Anglican, and uh, his parents avoided this because they were Methodist. So according to Gardner, his family members talked to him about paranormal events. And the patriarch of that side of his family, Ted Surgenson, believed that fairies were still living in England and particularly in his garden. 
and would often say he could feel them there and that he had seen them, though he admitted the possibility that it may have been imagined by him. It was from this that Gardner claimed to have discovered a family rumor that his grandfather Joseph had been a witch after being converted to the practice by his mistress. Another unconfirmed family belief repeated by Gardner was that a Scottish ancestor named Gristle had been burned as a witch in Newburgh in 1610. Skipping ahead a little bit because we have um, a lot of information to cover. We want to talk about kind of the spiritual side of this. But uh, Gardner's mother had died in 1920, but he did not return to Britain on that occasion. But in 1927, his father became very ill with dementia and Gardner decided to visit him. On his return to the UK, Gardner began to investigate spiritualism and mediumship and Sood had several encounters which he attributed to spirits of deceased relatives. Continuing to visit spiritualist churches and seances, he was very critical of much of what he saw, although he'd encountered several mediums that he did consider to be genuine. One medium apparently made contact with a deceased cousin of Gerald's, which greatly impressed him, and his first biographer, Jack Bracelin, reports that this was a watershed moment in his life and that a previous academic interest in spiritualism and the afterlife became a firm personal belief for him. The same evening, the 28th of July, 1927, after Gardner had met this medium, he met the woman he was to marry, Dorothy Frances Rosedale, known as Donna, who was related to his sister-in-law, Edith. He asked her to marry him the next day, and she agreed. Because his leave was coming to an end very soon, they married quickly on the 16th of August at St. Jude's Church in Kensington, and then honeymooned in uh, the Isle of Wight before heading to France. Arriving in the country, the couple settled into a bungalow, and once again, um, looking into the occult and the esoteric, Gardner became involved with Freemasonry, joining the Johor Royal Lodge number 3946, but retired from it by April of 1931. He also returned to his old interests in anthropology, witnessing the magical practices performed by locals, and he readily accepted a belief in magic. During his time in Malaya, Gardner became increasingly interested in uh, folk magic and weaponry, and he was not only interested in the anthropology of Malaya, but also its archaeology. He began excavations at the city of Johor Lama alone and in secret, as the local sultan considered archaeologists um, basically to be the same as grave robbers. And prior to his investigations, no serious archaeological excavation had ever occurred there, though Gardner himself soon unearthed four miles of earthworks and uncovered finds that included tombs, pottery, and porcelain dating from Ming, China. He went on to begin further excavations at the Royal Cemetery of Kota Tinggi and the jungle city of Xiangpengang, and his finds were displayed as an expedition, an exhibit rather, um, called The Early History of Johor at the National Museum of Singapore, and several beads that he had discovered suggested that trade went on between the Roman Empire and the Malays, presumably. So Gardner did return to Europe eventually in 1936. He and his wife um, returned to Britain. She proceeded straight to London, renting them a flat there, and Gardner visited Palestine, becoming involved in the archaeological excavations by J.L. Starsky. And he grew particularly interested in a temple containing statues to both the male deity of Judeo-Christian mythology and the pagan goddess Asherah. From Palestine, Gardner went to Turkey, Greece, Hungary, and Germany, and eventually reached England, but soon went on to visit Denmark to attend a conference there on weaponry in Copenhagen. 
returned to Britain, he found that the climate had once again made him sick, like in his childhood, leading him to register with the doctor, Edward Gregg, who recommended that he try nudism. Hesitant at first, he attended an indoor nudist club in North London, where he made several friends and felt that nudity cured his illnesses. And when summer came, he decided to visit an outdoor nudist club near the town of Bricketwood in Hertfordshire, which he began to frequent. Through nudism, Gardner made a number of notable friends, including James Laver, who became the keeper of prints and drawings at the Victoria Albert Museum, and Cody Arthur Berland, who was a curator of the Department of Ethnology at the British Museum. Gardner's biographer, Philip Heselton, suggested that though the nudist scene Gardner um, may have also met Dion Bingham, a senior member of the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry, who propounded a contemporary pagan religion called Dionysianism, which, uh, as I'm sure you can tell by the, the name, is a reference to Dionysus. By the end of 1936, Gardner was finding his Charing Cross Road flat to be cramped, and he moved into um, the Buckingham Palace mansions. Not like where the queen lives, but like, you get it. Anyway, <laughs> fearing the cold of the English winter and the effects that he believed it would have on his health, he decided to sail to Cyprus in late 1936, and he remained there into the following year. And this is kind of where we come to um, his involvement with Wicca. So in Highcliffe, Gardner came across a building describing itself as the first Rosicrucian theater in England. Having an interest in Rosicrucianism, a prominent magical religious tradition within the Western esoteric tradition, Gardner decided to attend one of the plays that they had put on. In August 1939, he took his wife to a theatrical performance based on the life of Pythagoras. Um, an amateur thespian, he said the performance, or rather she, his wife, said the performance was terrible and that she hated it. And she thought the quality of the acting and the script were both terrible, and she refused to see another play by these people. But unperturbed and hoping to learn more about Rosicrucianism, Gardner joined the group um, in charge of running the theater, the Rosicrucian Order Crotona Fellowship. He began attending meetings held in their local ashram. Founded in 1920 by George Alexander Sullivan, the fellowship had been based on a blend of Rosicrucianism, theosophy, Freemasonry, and his own personal innovation, and had moved to Christchurch in 1930. As time went on, Gardner became very critical of many of the practices of the group. Um, the followers claimed that Sullivan was an immortal being, um, having personally been famous historical figures like Pythagoras um, and Francis Bacon. So Gardner was like, no. <laughs> um, so he left the group in 1939, and one of the group leaders sent a letter to all the members um, saying that war would not come to England, and then proving her incorrect the very next day, Britain declared war on Germany, which did not impress Gardner, who was very cynical at that time. So although skeptical of the Rosicrucian order, Gardner got on very well with some people from the group, and his biographer, Philip Heselton, theorized that the group consisted of Edith Woodford Grimes, if you remember from my episode on Doreen, as well as Susie Mason, her brother, Ernie Mason, and their sister, Rosetta Fudge, all of whom had originally come from Southampton before moving to the area around Highcliffe where they joined the order. According to Gardner, unlike many of the others in the order, they had to earn their livings. They were cheerful and optimistic and were genuinely interested in the occult. Gardner became very fond of them, marking that he would have gone through hell and high water for any of them. 
In particular, he grew close to Woodford Grimes, being invited over to her home to meet her daughter, and the two helped each other with their writing. Woodford Grimes probably assisted Gardner um, in editing A Goddess Arrives prior to publication, and Gardner would eventually give her the nickname Dafo, for which she would become better known. According to Gardner's later accounts, one night in September of 1939, they took him to a large house owned by Old Dorothy, a wealthy local woman, where he was made to strip naked and taken through an initiation ceremony. Halfway through the ceremony, he heard the word witcha and recognized it as an old English term for witch. He was already very acquainted with Margaret Murray's theory of a witch cult, and he believed that this is one of the surviving covens of an ancient pre-Christian witchcraft religion. Subsequently, um, through research by the likes of Ronald Hutton and Philip Heselton, we have now learned that the New Forest Coven was probably formed in like the 1930s based on folk magic and the theories of Margaret Murray. But Gardner only ever described one of their rituals in depth, and this was the event that he called Operation Cone of Power. According to his own account, it took place in 1940 as part of the New Forest, and it was designed to ward off the Nazis from invading Britain by magical means. Gardner claimed that a great circle was erected at night with a cone of power, a form of magical energy being raised and sent to Berlin with the command of, you cannot cross the sea, you cannot come. And um, obviously, no one's obligated to believe that that was successful, but England was never invaded by Germany, so do with that information what you would like. So throughout this time in the New Forest, Gardner had regularly traveled to London, keeping his flat, um, until mid-1939, and regularly visiting the nudist club there. He also befriended Ross Nichols, who later introduced him to Druidry. Nichols would become enamored with this faith and eventually founded the Order of Bards, Ovids, and Druids, which is still very active to this day. However, following the war, Gardner returned to London in late 1944 or early 45. Continuing his interest in nudism, in 1945, he purchased a plot of land and four acres, a nudist colony near the village of Ricketwood in Hertfordshire, that would later be named Five Acres, and as a result, he would become one of the major shareholders of the club, exercising a significant level of power over administrative decisions. Between 1936 and 39, Gerald befriended Christian mystic Jay Ward, proprietor of Abbey Folk Park, Britain's oldest open-air museum. One of the exhibits was a 16th century cottage, that Ward had found near Ledbury, Hertfordshire, and had transported to the park, where he exhibited it as a witch's cottage. Gardner made a deal with him, exchanging the cottage um, for Gardner's piece of land in, in Cyprus, and the witch's cottage was dismantled and transported to the Brigate Wood, where it was reassembled on Gardner's five acres. In midsummer of 1947, he held a ceremony in the cottage as a form of housewarming, and Philip Heselton speculated this was probably based on the ceremonial magic rites featured in the Key of Solomon. Furthering his interest in esoteric Christianity, in August 1946, Gardner was ordained a priest in the ancient British church, a fellowship open to anyone who considered themselves a monotheist. Gardner also took an interest in Druidry, joining the ancient Druid order and attending its annual midsummer rituals at Stonehenge. He also joined the Folklore Society, being elected to their council in 1946, and the same year gave a talk on the art of magic talismans. Gardner hoped to spread Wicca and describe some of its practices in fictional form as high magic's aid. Set in the 20th century, Gardner included scenes of ceremonial magic based on the Key of Solomon, 
Published by the Atlantic's Bush Shop in July 1949, Gardner's manuscript had been edited into a publishable form by astrologer Madeline Montalban. And privately, he had also began to work on a scrapbook known as the Book of Art Magical, which was essentially the prototype of what would later become the Book of Shadows. He also gained some of his first initiates, including Barbara, Barbara, including Barbara and Gilbert Vickers, who were initiated between autumn of 1949 and autumn of 1950. Gardner also came into contact with Cecil Williamson, who was intent on opening his own museum devoted to witchcraft. The result will be the Folklore Center of Superstition and Witchcraft, opened in Castletown on the Isle of Man in 1951. Gardner and his wife moved to the island where he took up the position of resident witch. On the 29th of July, the Sunday Victorial published an article about the museum in which Gardner said, of course I'm a witch, and I get great fun out of it. The museum was not a financial success, and the relationship between Gardner and Williamson deteriorated over time. In 1954, Gardner brought the museum uh, from Williamson and then returned to England to found the Museum of Witchcraft, settling in Cornwall. In Western Europe, um, the theory of the witch cult was kind of gaining influence at this time. And in 1954, Gardner published a nonfiction book, Witchcraft Today, containing a preface by Margaret Murray, who had really like pushed the idea of the witch cult hypothesis. And Gardner not only agreed that the survival of the witch cult had taken place, but also um, his theory that fairies in Europe was due to a secretive pygmy race that had lived along other communities and that the Knights Templar had been initiates of witchcraft. So obviously we know there's some some errors there. But in 1960, Gardner's official biography entitled Gerald Gardner, Witch, was published. It was written by a friend of his, the Sufi mystic Idris Shah, but he used the name of one of Gardner's high priests, Jack Bracelin, because he was um, concerned about being publicly associated with witchcraft. In May of the same year, Gardner traveled back to Buckingham, where he enjoyed a garden party in recognition of his years of service to the empire in the Far East. And soon after this trip, his wife passed away, and Gardner himself began to suffer again from uh, his severe asthma. The following year, he, along with Lois Bourne, traveled to the island of Majorca to holiday with the poet Robert Graves, whose poetic work, The White Goddess, would play a significant part in the burgeoning Wiccan religion. In 1963, Gardner decided to go to Lebanon for the winter, and whilst returning home on the ship, the Scottish Prince, on the 12th of February 1964, he suffered a fatal heart attack at the breakfast table. He was buried in Tunisia, the ship's next port of call, and his funeral was attended only by the ship's captain. He was 79 years old. Though having bequeathed the museum, all of his artifacts, and the copyright to his books and his will to one of his high priestesses, Monique Wilson, she and her husband sold off the artifact collection to the American Ripley's Believe It or Not organization several years later. Ripley's took the collection to America, where it was displayed in two museums before, before being sold off during the 1980s. Gardner had also left his inheritance to Patricia Crother, Doreen Valiente, Lois Bourne, and Jack Bracelin, the latter inheriting the Five Acres Nudist Club and taking over as the full-time high priest of the Brickett Wood Coven. Several years after his death, the Wiccan high priestess Eleanor Bone visited North America looking for Gardner's grave, um, and she discovered that the cemetery he was interred in was to be redeveloped, and she raised enough money for his body to be moved to a different place, where it still remains in Tunis, Tunisia. In 2007, a new plaque was attached to his grave, describing him as the father, the father, the father of modern Wicca, beloved of the great goddess.
So Gardner only married once um, to his wife, Donna, and several people that knew him said that he was very, very devoted to her. And after her death in 1960, he had a really severe deterioration in his health. Um, Despite this, many of the coven members at his cottage uh, would often stay with him overnight, especially those that lived too far away to travel home safely. And the author, Philip Heselton, who largely researched the origins of Wicca, he came to the conclusion that Gardner likely held a longtime affair with Dafo, a theory that was expanded upon later by Adrian Bott. And those who knew him within the witchcraft movement said that he was a firm believer in the therapeutic benefits of sunbathing and that he had several tattoos on his body, including such magical symbols as snakes, dragons, anchors, and daggers. In his later life, he wore a very heavy bronze bracelet, noting the three degrees of witchcraft, as well as a large silver ring. Um, And his magical name was written on it in the Theban alphabet as well. So his legacy, I think, goes without saying. Um, Ethan Doyle White would later say that there are few figures in esoteric history who can rival Gardner for his dominating place in the pantheon of pagan pioneers. I think that's true. he was and remains to this day a very controversial figure. Um, his claims are still kind of investigated and contested to this day. Um, not really going to expand on my views of that, but if you're curious to hear them, I do have a separate episode that's called uh, In Defense of Wicca, if you'd like to hear my take on some of those things. But um, I think it's inarguable that Gardner has had a massive influence on not only Wicca, but um, the modern witchcraft movement as a whole. So I hope you enjoyed learning about him today. But that's all I have for you right now, and I will see you next time.